Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. This recording and the festival itself take place on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to ancestors and elders, past and present. We hope you enjoy this conversation from our 2021 podcast series. Hello and welcome to this Sydney Writers' Festival Curiosity Lecture. My name is Sally Coleman. I'm a musician, a writer, a radio presenter who most recently was the host of Triple J Breakfast. So we're about to hear from Rob Brooks, who is an evolutionary biologist who studies the conflicting interests that make sex sizzle and reproduction complicated. As Scientia Professor of Evolution at UNSW, he studies the behaviour and evolution of humans and non-human animals. His first book, Sex, Genes and Rock and Roll, won the Eureka Prize for Science Communication. And his latest book comes out this Saturday. It's called Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers and Algorithmic Matchmaking. We're about to hear Rob speak for the very first time about some of the ideas in this book, like how machines are being programmed to mimic the way that humans make friends, grow intimate and fall in love. And I think before COVID came along, this idea was here for a while, but there was a little bit of a dystopian attitude to technology becoming more human-like. But during the pandemic, personally, I was just really grateful for anything that helped me feel connected to other people. And these kinds of artificially intimate devices are changing and developing really quickly. So Rob Brooks wants to tell us how they can help us stay close to each other, and make us feel better in these times of isolation, cognitive overload, and the rising rates of mood disorders. So please make him feel welcome, Rob Brooks. Thank you so much, Sally, and thank you everybody for coming out here in the open air. All the people in the sun, you got the good tickets. Um, Enjoy. What happens? when our ancient evolved human minds encounter 21st century technologies, technologies that those minds have built or at least set off in their way, technologies like robotics, virtual reality, and most important of all, artificial intelligence. Those technologies are currently creeping into our social and emotional lives, and the speed with which they are doing so has accelerated during the lockdowns and isolation of the current pandemic. They're hacking the ways in which humans form friendships, build intimacy, fall in love, and get off. I call these technologies artificial intimacies. The possibilities that they open up both terrify and inspire me about humanity's future. When I tell people about artificial intimacy, their minds often spring directly towards sex robots. Sex robots are the cute kind of mascots of this area at the moment, or perhaps horrifying mascots, depending on where you are positioned in relation to them. There's something train crash magnetic about the idea of lifelike robots that can move among us and move along with us, hard to distinguish from living, breathing, orgasming humans. Sex robots raise a great many questions. Many of them are not particularly polite questions, not necessarily the kinds of questions people want to hear at 11 a.m. on a Thursday morning. But I consider sex robots mostly a distraction, a distraction from the main game. They're just one kind 
of a type of technology that I call digital lovers. And digital lovers are just one of three different types of artificial intimacy that I distinguish. And I'll give you a little bit of a sense of what those three types are to begin with. So digital lovers like sex robots also include virtual reality pornography. All of this stuff can be Googled, by the way, but don't do it here. And it interfaces with not just headsets and headphones, but also with haptics, peripherals that stimulate and stimulate touch, and with teledildonics, which is really the internet of sex toys. Perhaps the most advanced kind of intimate, um, artificial intimacy at the moment are the algorithmic matchmakers. Now, we think immediately about dating applications like Tinder and Grindr and OkCupid and um, Christian Connection, depending on what your kink is, that connect us with potential lovers and friends, but also social media like Facebook and Instagram, many of you are on right now, are very good at suggesting who we might be friends with um, based on the data that they have on our networks and on one another's networks. And of course, to make ends meet, those algorithmic matchmakers will hook us up with paying advertisers and political candidates and fake news. Spotify, YouTube, and even Pornhub also employ algorithmic matchmakers. YouTube delivers that particular unique brand of viewing crack cocaine via machine learning algorithms that discover entirely anew, quite idiosyncratic patterns of association in what people like. The third circle of artificial intimacy, hell, is the virtual friends. And these will probably grow to be the most influential, in my opinion. They currently include therapist apps, which are actually reasonably good at walking people through cognitive behavior therapy for, you know, mild, don't try this at home um, conditions. Some computer game characters are virtual friends. And apps that take your confession, if you happen to be of the Roman Catholic persuasion, are also available. And these are very, very useful things to have in times of isolation, where it's very difficult to get to a church or to a doctor. The most ubiquitous virtual friends here in 2021 are the AI assistants, like Amazon's Alexa, Microsoft's Cortana, and Baidu's Duo OS. They apply several different kinds of AI, including natural language processing to understand what humans say or write, and I mean in understand in scare quotes, natural language generation of the output so that humans can understand them, and machine learning, by which machines discover what to do with data without having to be explicitly programmed in, in terms of how to handle it. That machine learning aspect is really very important. Something that I didn't appreciate when I started, I'm an evolutionary biologist, I think about human nature, I'm not an expert in artificial intelligence. Virtual friends are currently learning based on data, the data that people use as they move through the internet, as they answer questions and as they talk to each other. They're learning to tap into the social traits that humans evolved as we became the cooperative, cultural, generous, romantic apes that we are today. And if you have a bleak view of human nature, that's your baggage. Because compared with other animals, we are incredibly cooperative and quite good at love and affection. It's not to say everything is, um, is easy. So I call these traits the human algorithms. And the first that I want to consider is the fact that we groom our friends in the innocent sense of that word grooming. Primates, 
from small monkeys through to great apes, groom one another in order to build friendship and loyalty and alliances, and those are very important for survival. It is impossible for a primate, including a human primate, to groom all day, every day, although try telling that to teenagers. Primates that spend any more than 20% of their waking hours devoted to grooming risk starvation. According to the anthropologist Robin Dunbar, who's done the really influential work in this area, humans have the time and the cognitive capacity, the headspace, to groom about 150 friends. Now, friends are people that you could join at a bar if you happen to see them at a bar, not having made an arrangement, for at least one drink. That's the official sort of English anthropologist definition of what a friend is. Um, Facebook Corporation, however, is taking Dunbar to court. Around 50 of those friends, so one-third, can be special close friends, and about one-third of that could be your sort of tighter group of intimate friends, um, also called your support network. And you know, of course, we differ a little bit in how big those numbers are, but those are average numbers for people. And the reason that there are numbers, that there are numeric constraints on how many of each type of friend we can have is that we're constrained by how many individuals we can groom and how much information about them we can retain because of our cognitive capacity. Humans are by far the most sociable of primates and our numbers are very big because we're groomers extraordinaire. We're so sociable that we couldn't possibly tend our friend networks simply by hanging out and picking burrs and ectoparasites from one another's fur. I mean, that's considered generally kind of rude in most societies. The evolution of complex language enabled humans to groom at least four times as many people as the traditional ape monkey forms of grooming. And we do so because we gossip. And when I say gossip, I don't mean, you know, saying nasty things about Harry and Meghan, although that is a form of gossip. It's a, it's a spin-off. Gossip is the old-school news radio by which we learned about the worlds that we inhabit and the people around us and the conditions, because those things are very important to know. Gossip is also the way in which many relatively weak individuals can work together in order to um, neutralize dangerous people and despots. It doesn't always work, but it is one mechanism that we have, and it works in small group societies most of the time. The key thing is that gossip is an iterative, algorithmic process by which we each come to know our social worlds. Social media like Facebook tap into our friend grooming behaviors. They aggregate our friends, both our past and our present friends, and sometimes they help us to make new friends by sharing our gossip. And the ways in which we share our gossip and the ways we like and share one another's gossip are the ways in which Facebook and other social media come to learn who are our friends, who are our close friends, who are our intimate friends, and they start to form that same concentric circle view of our social worlds that we have and that we operate within. They keep us on platform, the social media platforms keep us there by showing us more posts from those people we're interested in, from those people closer to our inner circles and fewer from our distant sort of somebodies that we used to know. When social media and other virtual friends hack our friend grooming algorithms, they displace our offline friendships. I'm not spending with my partner or my family or my friends. Like apes and monkeys, humans spend an average of about 20% of our waking hours grooming. 
But in 2019, just before the pandemic hit, the average social media user in the West spent 153 minutes per day on social media, which amounts to 16% of your waking hours. So there's only 4% of your waking hours left in your time budget that is traditionally devoted to grooming, to gossip, to hanging out with people and getting to know your social world. What's the solution? Well, social media basically expand. They expand into the time that we would normally reserve for non-social work, for play, and especially for sleep. This is important because social media are already being blamed for generational changes in behavior and rising rates of anxiety and depression amongst teenagers and young adults. The effects of social media are often pinned on the social comparison that happens on social media and the lack of privacy and the fewer opportunities for social experimentation and for making mistakes because, of course, your mistakes are documented. This is a, a gloomy view of social media and its relationship to youth mental health. There seems to be some evidence in its favor, but it is contested. Recently, some evidence has come to light from the 2020 lockdowns that there was actually a drop in youth mood disorders. Despite the fact that people were spending more time on social media because that was the primary way in which they kept in touch with one another. It seems that teens also spent more time during lockdown and isolation hanging out with their families and, um, and getting sleep because they could get straight out of bed and into the virtual classroom. That commuting time had been taken out of their time budget. So if social media are harming young people, it might not be because of the social comparison angle, but rather because of the way that social media and other distractions are eating into sleep and family time. Irrespective, it's something to be concerned about, particularly if you're a parent of teenagers and young adults as I am. Machine learning algorithms mine the vast drafts of um, user data to find more compelling ways to keep us on the platforms and as AI begins to improve human-computer interaction, social media will evolve from their current role as matchmakers and facilitators helping us to manage our friendships to becoming virtual friends in their own right. Friends that type, that talk, and that post like human friends do in order to keep us seeing whatever it is that is profitable for the companies to see. Now that might have its benefits in that it might provide company for the lonely, but it will chew up even more time and that time is particularly uh, the limited time we have for sleep and for family. The second human algorithm I want to consider is the way in which we build intimacy, and this is really an extension of grooming behavior. The more we groom another person, the closer they become to our very inner circle, and we bring them from that 150 friend circle into our 50 close friends or into our 15 intimate support network friends. According to psychologists, Intimacy is the incorporation of the other person into our sense of self. The closer we become to them, the more we tend to think of their identity as our identity, as our views being also their views, often mistakenly, as uh, mikasa como sukasa. That's why it can be really upsetting to lose somebody close to you and almost as upsetting to discover that your friend has absolutely repellent political views because it challenges not only our view of them, but our view of ourselves. The most effective way to build intimacy involves a process called escalating self-disclosure, where you disclose ever more private aspects of yourselves to one another, 
And this normally takes a long time, days, weeks, sometimes years. In the 1980s, however, the psychologists Arthur and Elaine Aron showed that intimacy can be deliberately and rapidly cultivated. They brought pairs of volunteers who were unknown to each other into their lab, and they asked them to work through a series of 36 questions. And those questions began relatively innocuously, like, um, who is your favorite dinner guest? But they very quickly escalated to serious emotional baggage handling, like, if you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone? And why haven't you told them yet? Now, that's a very bossy question to ask on a first date, but it seems to work in establishing intimacy, particularly if you're making eye contact while you do it. Compare that with a control group who simply worked through 36 small talk questions, the couples that went through escalating self-disclosure ended up much closer to one another at the end of the experiment and at the follow-up several weeks and several months later. One of the couples actually married and famously invited Arthur and Elaine Aaron and all the members of their lab to the wedding, which may explain a few things. Building intimacy via escalating self-disclosure is such an algorithmic process that several apps now replicate the Aaron's 36 questions. Just search 36 questions at the App Store and you'll see what I mean. None of them, however, credit the original paper. It's ironic then that people are sitting on their smartphones answering questions about themselves in the hope of establishing and building human-human intimacy. But what about human-machine intimacy? People disclose all sorts of things to computers. You should see some of the things that people say to Siri and Alexa, often because people are starting to think of them not as machines, but as people in some right. For decades, we've known that the more people disclose to a computer, even if they're typing it into a clunky terminal, the more they tend to think of that computer as human, and the more they're inclined to trust things that that computer tells them, including product recommendations. More than that, if a computer is programmed to disclose some kind of faux vulnerabilities, like I'm a bit slow today, some of my scripts need debugging, the more people like it and the more people trust it. Now, machine learning will not have to replicate the Aaron's 36 questions like the plagiarists on the App Store in order to learn how to build intimacy. Given all the things that people say to one another online, a virtual friend with good machine learning will very likely find the very best questions to ask and be able to tailor those to the specific question that the machine is trying to build intimacy with. Machine learning will likely make short work of getting people to incorporate the machines into their senses of selves. That, again, could provide companionship to those who are sorely lacking in those commodities, but it's also going to displace offline relationships and it's going to open up new opportunities for exploitation. And I cover a number of those opportunities for exploitation in the book. The third and final human algorithm or set of algorithms that I want to talk about is the ways in which we find one another, partner up and have sex, not always in that linear order. When I was at university back in the early 90s, we met our boyfriends and girlfriends at parties and in class and through friends. And even though many of us believed strongly in the two-party system, party on Friday night, party on Saturday night, there were only so many people that you could possibly meet. And if you were chatting up somebody who was already in a relationship, somebody would make sure that you knew that. So there were constraints on how many possible candidates for romantic relationships you could encounter. 
We didn't have social media to fritter away our time, and my children find it very difficult to relate to this. But the equivalent in those days, if you remember, and some of you I can see were there, the equivalent of TikTok was the newspaper classifieds. I remember spending hours decoding the personals. S-M-O-H-A-C-W-L-T-M-F-20-30-Y-O, G-S-O-H-I-S-O-L-T-R, was not a loser, he was a catch. He was a single man with his own house and car, so he obviously didn't live in Sydney, who would like to meet females 20 to 30 years old with a good sense of humor and in search of long-term relationships. Many of those terms don't even have any meaning anymore. No way we would say to ourselves and to one another, would we ever seek somebody to date, to love, or to marry, as people did sometimes back then, through newspaper personals. No sooner had we said that than the internet infested our lives and built faster, more effective ways of connecting with people who were looking for love. Perhaps the greatest impact that artificial intimacy is having in the present day is through the matchmaker algorithms, the dating matchmaker algorithms. Apps actually aren't all that good at matching compatible people or people who are actually going to really hit it off. What they do is they present photographs and a brief amount of profile information and invite users to swipe left or right. And in doing so, they, they match people who are of more or less comparable attractiveness in a very superficial way. They then allow them to basically, from making a match, to strike up a conversation and the rest is really up to them. Now, one problem with this model that's emerged, and it wasn't part of the, you know, anybody's design foresight, is that the most attractive people get by far the most matches. Unconstrained by the number of people one can meet or conversations that one can fit in, the swipe right model means that attractive people have an absolute abundance of matches, and those of average or below average attractiveness, and half of us are, it's a bit of a damp squib. The worsening in sexual inequality that has resulted from matchmaker apps is especially extreme among male users for reasons that I'm not going to expostulate on right now, but um, certainly could do afterwards. The concentration of opportunities towards a few highly attractive men leaves a large rump of average to below average men with hardly any matches. And having large numbers of unpartnerable men kicking about in a society has proved again and again to be a pretty bad thing. It's elevated the chances of social chaos, of violence, of crime, and of that society marching to war with its neighbors. In Western societies today, some of these men refer to themselves or are referred to by others as incels, which is a portmanteau of involuntary and celibate. And incels don't always acquit themselves all that well. They have a petulant, sexually entitled anger that underpins much of right-wing extremism and homegrown terror, not to mention the rise of misogyny and anti-immigration sentiment. If matchmaker algorithms, like Tinder, are worsening sexual inequality, could another kind of artificial intimacy present a net benefit by helping to reduce loneliness, desperation, and also the number of incels? and incidentally allow me to end on a somewhat happy note. I believe they can. Digital lovers like smart sex toys, VR sex, and yes, the sex robots, provide what economists would call substitutes for sex. Now, VR sex in particular, where people 
are in different places and wired up to haptic and teledildonic devices and able to enjoy some kind of a shared experience or scene will allow people to overcome the tyranny of distance and have safe consensual relations without having to be on the same continent. Now that's great for couples who are separated by distance in isolation, but it needn't be restricted to couples. It needn't be restricted to the binary notion of couples, and it needn't be restricted to people who know each other because matchmaker algorithms are getting so good at pairing people with one another for more casual encounters. All of this will open up possibilities. Some of the possibilities will be possibilities for new kinds of sex work. If societies can be mature enough to overcome their hang-ups about sex work. Can you imagine how different lockdown might have been had these technologies been ready in 2020? Now, we already know that technologies that substitute for sex and suppress demand can have salutary effects at the society level. Now, we know this because of watching pornography, or more precisely, um, because of watching what happens when societies allow people to watch pornography. Technological changes from print magazines to video cassette recorders, weren't they a big thing in the 80s and 90s? To the internet, allowed pornography to creep out of the shadows into our private and many of our public spaces. Now, social conservatives didn't like this, and they said that porn would be the end of marriage and the end of the family, and that it would invite divine retribution. Anti-porn feminists found themselves in the fairly bizarre situation for themselves of fighting on the same side of social conservatives because they said that the creeping pornographication of society would cause astronomic increases in sexual violence against women. Now, the evidence says that there has been a dwindling in marriage rates as porn rose. So here's a sentence you won't often hear me say, the conservatives were right, in part. Um, they were obviously out to lunch on divine retribution. Porn use is associated with less inclination to get married or to stay in exclusive relationships. A lot of that is not just because of the porn, but because of other things that changed at the same time as the porn. But porn does substitute for the kind of sex that used to be confined or largely restricted to matrimony. Despite there being plenty of anecdotes about negative effects of porn on individual users and on their relationships, the vast body of evidence that has accumulated over the last 40 or so years indicates that as pornography has increased in availability, sexual violence either decreased or did not increase in those societies. Now, that's not to argue that porn makes individuals nicer. Rather, having a substitute that meets some of the demand for sex tends to help societies become more relaxed about sex in general. It tends to extend the work of the sexual revolution and of second and third wave feminism. Those societies tend then to adopt progressive attitudes about sex, divorce, gender, sexuality, and in understanding the damage that is done by restrictive norms and institutions. All the things that social progressives care about and many of the things that radical feminism also cares deeply about. I predict that digital lover technologies could do a lot of society-level good by extending the gains made by pornography in siphoning off demand. Demand for sex. Unmet heterosexual male demand is where the most toxic consequences seem to reside at the moment. 
but digital lovers can also meet unmet demand from people of all genders and all sexualities. And that's really important because people of all kinds need connection and intimacy and stimulation. And they could probably benefit in the absence of anything else from facsimiles for those things. For some people, digital lovers may well be far better than nothing because the alternative for them might be exactly that, nothing. Even if digital lovers aren't as good as the real thing, and for now we know they definitely aren't, they may yet make the world a better place. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.